0: Welcome to the Codecast Podcast, real world insights for your daily medical coding and billing processes. And now, here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Codecast Podcast today. My name is Terry Fletcher. So, we are at the last Tuesday in April, which means that we are at Top 10 Tuesday, and boy, do we have a show today for you or I should say I have a rant today. <laughs> you know, some of you are like, oh, here she goes. It's actually not that I probably shouldn't start off that way, because I think that has a ne- negative connotation to it. But I am going to talk about compliance and following the published guidelines. I've had a lot of emails this week, a lot of feedback, a lot of kind of some frustrating conversations. And I just want to make sure everybody understands what compliance means, and if you're not following it, what that means as well. So generically speaking, I'm going to put some things out there that not only have I got from clients, non-clients, but just random questions from people so nobody will be identified. But some of these things that have come to my attention make me very nervous because if you are seriously contemplating doing things that the published regulation says don't, You could be in a lot of trouble and I just don't want you to get into trouble. You know, if you know me at all, you know, I do not want to use the word fraudulent. I don't like the acronym FWA, Fraud, Waste and Abuse. Um, I don't like referring to the OIG and the DOJ, but I'm telling you, if you're not compliant with regulatory guidance and it is caught or when you know it is happening and you're not reporting it, you're not speaking to your legal team on how to fix it or reaching out to somebody, that can help you fix it and stop doing it and have a corrective action plan, then you're gonna be in a lot of trouble. And it's just low hanging fruit. It just, I, I can't even tell you what a problem it is. And just think about this. I'm talking about things you're reporting for payment to either Medicare or even a third party payer, because remember that can fall under HHS as well. You're not only charging for things to a payer, you're now also charging the patient share of cost on something that you shouldn't be. And so now it gets into all kinds of different cans of worms and we just have to be careful. So I'm going to start with the first one. And this one, I don't know, made my head explode a little bit. Obviously, it's going to be, and I say obviously, because it seems like every other week I'm talking telehealth. But this one talks about crossing state lines. And I was just giving, I should say participating in a conference, a virtual conference with NAMIS, uh, with my um, cohort, uh, Brianna Santoli, who's a healthcare um attorney out of New Jersey. Um, She's actually also my cousin. I love her to death. And we do, we do have done a couple of these before together. It's been really nice because we kind of feed off each other on regulatory and she's legal. So works off, works out pretty well, but we were talking about crossing state lines and how you, you just can't do that unless you're licensed to practice in that state anymore. So we know when the public health emergency was first initiated, the federal government said that, you know, there was doctors that could come out of retirement, that they could see patients now, and they could see patients because uh, that were out of state, even if they weren't licensed in that state, because we were in lockdown for 15 days, that was it, remember, but we were encouraged not to go into the doctor's office for a couple of months after that. And that's why they opened up, you know, this free reign on telehealth and everything. And a lot of states also bought into this, which remember, it's states, it's not only federal, federal can say, we're allowing it for federal employees, but they can't tell states what to do. And unfortunately, not everybody looked at that. um, And not every state bought into it. Most did, but not everyone did. And then a lot of states, and I'm just going to call out Florida, they said, you know what, the PHE is over in 2021, or when we started to have vaccines and things like that, we know how to treat it, we know how to deal with it. And so patients can feel safe when they come back into the office. Um, And they definitely did not want to lose and I'm saying they meaning states did not want to lose their licensing fees as far as allowing physicians to practice in a state where the patient was, where they were not licensed. So between 2021 and 2022, I would say virtually all states dropped it. And there's only one state right now that even, Oregon, that even allows it um, as far as during the PHE, and then it's gonna end as soon as the PHE ends. So we're only down to one state now. So here's here's number one, here's the recent question. I just wanna give you a bit of background there. It said, uh, Terry, we have physicians that are in our state and, (laughs) and they're saying, so, um, we have a provider that evaluated the patient via audio only while the patient was vacationing and I'm changing the state so that I'm protecting people and clients. So why the patient was vacationing in Florida. We have looked up across some state lines for guidance for Florida, and it appears the flexibility of someone out of state getting an emergency license to see patients has expired and the waivers expired a year ago. My question is that if the patient is not a resident of Florida, but is vacationing there, can our provider who's not licensed in Florida, but is licensed in our state, can they see that patient? Well, you know my answer to that. So the first one is no, the state has to, has to allow it, uh, or state had to allow it private, uh, previously, but they don't have to allow it. It wasn't mandated. The physician must be licensed in the state the patient is at. And it's, and also where the physician's at. So here's the thing that I think people miss in the, in the rules. It doesn't say they have to be licensed in the state where the patient resides. That means where they live. They have to be licensed in the state where the patient is located at the time of the encounter. So if the patient's in Florida, if the patient's in, you know, North or South Carolina, if they're wherever they are, but your physician is in New Jersey or your physician is in Illinois or in California and your physician is not, doesn't have a dual license, then you can't do it. And I sent several different um, notices, regulatory guidance, one that came out from um, Medicare in April of last year that said Didn't we tell you? Yeah, we don't supersede the states. And then I get a response back from this this client that said, We're getting a lot of pushback regarding this information because our clinic has been allowing telehealth if done for the patient who has a permanent address in the state where we are, such as college students attending out of state or snowbirds that are going away, and the provider is conducting a telehealth visit while the patient's in another state, but the provider, again, is in our state. So the person that was asking this question, I appreciate this person because she was actually understanding it. She said, it doesn't seem like this is acceptable any longer. I looked at the Federation of State Medical Boards and the guidance that I gave. And then she said, does it matter that the patient is being seen for psychiatric issues? So such as anxiety and depression, not using mental health codes, but using office visit codes. And again, here's my response. I mean, and it was pretty long, but I'll kind of cap it for you. They're in violation of the law, basically treating without a license. If you treat a patient via telehealth, whether it be audio and video, audio only, or any kind of virtual care when the patient or I'm sorry, when the provider is not licensed in the state where the patient is located at the time of the encounter, federal government does not rule over anything the states have put into place in this matter. And it's the federal government that only allowed the flexibility under the PHE and states could offer it as well without having to pay extra for that. But it was not mandated and it was done for to stop or slow the spread of COVID. But now people are doing it just for the convenience. And that's not a PHE policy. Not only that, you now have a malpractice coverage issue. And on top of that, the national health emergency uh, ended actually April 10th, is quietly, not the PHE, that's still May 11th, but the national health emergency, meaning that we don't have a mandate anymore for military or any kind of action uh, when it comes to the public health emergency. So the doctors can push back on regulatory guidance all they want, but now you've got a fraudulent issue. There's no document that talks about conditions, that it's not subject to licensing. Um, it is subject to licensing requirement in the state. and conditions don't factor in. It's not tied to condition. it's tied to location. So many telehealth health options, and I know where the person was going with this, were made permanent for behavioral mal- and mental health services therapy. but that's still te- that and others are still temporary, But the location of the provider and the patient, didn't change in the relationship to licensing requirements. That's, again, based on location, not condition. There's also something called the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact. But even though one state may join, so for example, Illinois is part of that, but Florida isn't. So if your provider signs up for that and there's a lot of paperwork involved, you still have to go with a state that serves as one of those principal states part of that. And there's only half the country is doing it, not everybody. So, he, my advice to this person was you need to have an immediate meeting with your legal team. Because if I was auditing this, I'd be looking at from the time you started doing this, and then I'd be looking at every state that you, their providers did this, when they violated the rules, when that state's waivers came back, and then you'd have to do a self disclosure on refunds. And remember, patients also are paying co pays on those services, so those would have to be refunded. Right now, that's a mess. And to continue to do it knowing it's incorrect is a problem. And luckily, they did follow my advice but and talk to their legal team about it. Because this is a problem. You have to follow published guidance. I know that was a long number one. So let's get to number two. So a um, couple of the organizations that I'm affiliated with, I'm an external consultant. And these are societies for... Um, family physicians, for primary care doctors, for cardiologists, things like that. And I'm their external consultant they go to. So there's a question on their website and it said, we had someone point out a possible error on our, on our e page. Can you take a look at that? And it basically says, can lab results from a previous visit count towards an EM at a later date? So the association said, and I quote, if a test is ordered, but not reviewed on the same date, the results are received after the encounter, it can be counted towards the medical decision making at either the initial or subsequent encounter, but not both. That's contradictory to CPT guidelines, so that's incorrect. So CPT says, ordering a test is included in the category of the test result. That's category one, and the review of the test result is part of the encounter, not the subsequent encounter. And the reason for that is because there is an assumption that if you order a test, you're going to give a review at some point. Now, is there an exception to that rule? Let's say that the patient came in and there wasn't any ordering of tests, except your physician did ask the staff to uh, get the old records from where they used to be a patient. And so let's say they were changing primary care doctors and they wanted to make a decision to order anything else after they were able to review those records. So the patient goes home, those records were ordered. They come in maybe two weeks later and the doctor then goes over those records and says, oh, okay, so they haven't had these labs, they haven't had this test, I need to order that based on moving forward with their treatment. So they do that again, without an encounter call, somebody calls the patient said, hey, we're going to order these for you. Now, when they come back in for a subsequent visit, that order or that result, it's one and the same, could be counted toward the subsequent visit, because it wasn't done at the initial encounter. That's the only time it would be Um, An exception. Now, I know about the independent testing, test thing that you're doing as far as independent interpretation. That's completely different. This is just ordering and giving a result. We're not talking about the other. And so just be very cautious about that because I know a lot of practices are also trying to get credit for that result over and over and over again. I just did an audit for a practice where they kept using the same result in their data points. I'm like, the patient's not even coming in for that. You can't keep giving them the result of the A1C that was done three months ago. So those kinds of things actually drive me crazy because nobody's reading the rules. And you have to be very careful sometimes when you look at these rules. And I see people kind of going outside the box thinking, no, we can do that. Um, you know, Or, or saying we're going to push back on these rules. Oh, okay. You might want to be careful with that because that's a problem. So another pushback I got recently was we're on a pulmonary group that wanted to, that we're talk, we were talking about incident two. And they said, well, we don't really like the rule about the physician having to be in clinic. So we're probably, that we don't really follow that. I'm just like, oh no, you guys, my, my head hurts from beating it against the wall. I said, well, then you're not understanding what incident two is. You have to have the provider on site, the supervising physician, who's getting credit for those services. Otherwise, if there's no provider on site, it's billed direct under your nurse practitioner or PA. And they said, but we want the 15%. I'm like, then get in the office. I'm like, you can't do that. And so I said, that that is not part of the published guidance. He said, I know, but we don't like that. And again, I know some of you are sitting there going, oh my gosh hear me. Uh, you can't take a rule and part of it. It's kind of like, oh, no, I'm not going to say that. I, you know, we you know what? it's my podcast. I'm going to say it. How many people do you know? And I'm a faith, I'm a person of faith that sometimes take the Bible and take a verse out of context and don't finish reading. And then they say, oh, well, this is what it says. I'm like, you might want to finish reading and see the context it's in. I, I, f- I feel like that's the same thing, but in a healthcare. Perspective that you know, people are reading part of the answer or saying, I like this part, I like this part, I'm not doing that part. That's not how published regulatory guidance works. You have to follow the rules, otherwise, you can get in trouble. Number four, (laughs) and on this one, this is interesting. This one is about um, home visits and uh, homebound patients. So, does the patient need to be homebound if you're billing for? Um, home or resident services in 2023. We had a new category that has come up um, because the visits to patients in domiciliary care were combined with home visits in 2023. So chapter 12 of the Medicare Claims Processing Manual, and this is section 30.6.1.41b, says home ba- homebound status. Under the home health benefit, the beneficiary must be confined to, to home for services to be covered. Now, what that means is home health services. Those are different staff members than physicians. So if you are asking about physicians for home services, so EM services that are under the codes 99341 to 99350 with place of service 12, the beneficiary does not need to be confined to the home. So know the difference between home health benefit and where they need to be confined to the home for those services versus a physician coming to the home to see the patient under those EM and services for home visits. I know that seems weird, but that just means that the patient does not need to be homebound or confined to the home to receive a home visit by a physician. So if it's home health services by the home health nurses, that's completely different Then yes, they do have to be confined to the home for that. I know sometimes that's a little bit hard to understand, but we just want to make sure everyone kind of gets that the difference there. So number five on my compliance or non-compliant uh, p- different things. Uh, again, I'm going to re- circle back around to telehealth on the audio-only visits because I can't tell you how many arguments I have with people on this. So when a patient needs to have an encounter with a physician to discuss why they need a medicine change, to discuss their you know medication management and so on for, and so forth because there is a problem with their um, their blood pressure or because they're having some adverse reactions to maybe some medication they just started on, and they do this audio only, and they and they're under you know the patients at home and the physician is in the office, and they're in the same state. Um, that could be considered an audio only encounter under the 99441 to 99443 codes temporarily through the end of 2024. But if your practice is just doing a refill, like they call into the refill line and maybe you're letting them know, or just because you refilled it, those codes cannot be used for refilling prescriptions. That's not what those codes are for. They're a replacement for an EM service where the patient couldn't come in the office. Or they were not able to to participate in an audio and video phone call. And just be aware that most of the Medicaid uh, payers and after the PHE the guidance has said that once the public health emergency ends you have to fulfill the description of the phone call codes, which means that there has to be medical information in there and not again, just a prescription refill. If you didn't do it prior to the pandemic, don't do it now. And I see so many people taking liberties with those phone calls be, and it's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. You do not get paid to refill a prescription as far as a routine service. So please don't do that. Number six, the new versus established patient So patient was seen in the hospital, has not been seen in your office, patient now comes to your office a year or two years later, even for a different problem, and sees a physician that they didn't see in the hospital, but that physician is still part of your practice, another physician in the practice, new or established. That's established. Remember that three-year rule. Anybody in your practice, same specialty or subspecialty, if you see them within the past three years, doesn't matter location, then that is going to be an established patient visit. And I still see that being billed incorrectly. So that's number six, make sure you're billing established patients correctly. Now, I don't know if this really falls under a coding issue or compliance issue, but it's definitely an issue I wanted to bring to your attention. And this is number seven, as far as noncompliance, of course, right as I start Recording, I hear a barking dog right outside my window. It's not my dog. I don't have dogs. Um, but anyway, so this one comes from when you decide you're going to outsource your um, your billing. If, and that's up to you if you want to do that. I know many people do. I would discourage using somebody out of country, but that's just me because they don't follow necessarily the um, U.S. guidelines and that can get you into some trouble. But when you decide to outsource your billing company, I strongly advise you not only to have somebody in there and make sure that they are certified under your specialty, but also that they understand um, what it means as far as uh, billing, coding, and collecting. If you have somebody or a billing company that is not full circle or revenue cycle management, then why are you using them? Are they data entry people only? And so you need to vet them. Please do not allow your providers just to hire somebody based on their percentage rate. Because again, that will also get you into a lot of trouble because you're thinking you're getting this great deal. And remember, you get what you pay for. And down the line, you're going to see a problem. I'm cleaning up a lot of messes right now from billing companies that had said that they understood cardiology or they understood orthopedic uh, one hand surgery clinic said oh my gosh they didn't even have anybody who understood basic orthopedics Um, i have one interventional radiologist that decided to outsource their billing and that's one of the hardest specialties to code and everything was coded wrong there I, i couldn't even find something coded correctly and also a lot of these billing companies say that they do credentialing and contracting remember those are two separate things credentialing is getting providers approved to be on a payer panel And make sure that you can bill for them under that payer that's credentialing. Contracting is what you're signing as far as payments, timelines, that you're now entering into a contract with a certain payer. And many billing companies do not do that correctly. And so, again, make sure that you have the right people, the right people with the right credentials, specialty, background, experience, if you're going to outsource any of those services. Another question I got this week was a urgent care center that was saying, Hey, we're billing a lot of incident two, And we're now getting requests for refunds. Okay. First of all, urgent care, just by definition means new problem. And I know some Some patients do use it as their primary care provider, which can get the urgent care into trouble, not the patient because they're specific um, as far as a step down from ER. And they're not supposed to really see follow-up for, you know, patients for something they were in there before they could lose their status because there's some benefits they get from um, urgent care. I, I invest in two of them. So I know how all that, those rules work, but what you have to be very cognitive of is to make sure that your incident two rules, meaning someone on site, that's a physician um, and then also making sure that it's not a new problem or an existing problem that has an exacerbation where the treatment plan is going to change. If any of those are true, then you, you can't bill it incident two. Now, are there clinics out there rent under urgent care that are run by nurse practitioners and PAs with a physician accessible? Yes. And now they have to be on site in certain states if number of days a week. Some actually require it every day, but you have to check with your state. But if there is not anyone on site, it has to be billed out under that mid-level provider. And don't get these confused with retail clinics. Those are those clinics where you can stop by and you know get your eyes checked or get a vaccine if you wanted. Or you know you're like, oh gosh, I have a cold. And usually what they'll say is they'll get say give you um, a recommendation for an over-the-counter med. And if you need anything um, beyond that, they will send you to either an urgent care or back to a primary care doctor. So. Try not to get those confused as well. But just be very careful about applying rules that may not apply to certain settings. And incident two and urgent cares, they just don't work that way. Number nine, and I'm going to stick with my urgent care theme. So for this one, I'm, I'm seeing this a lot where I'll see in the note that I'm auditing, it'll say the um, patient is going to be sent to the hospital for a CT scan under their insurance that is not covered in the urgent care sen- setting and we don't have that beyond an x-ray. And because they're sending them to the ER to get a CT scan, they decide that's hospital. So immediately it's a level five. No, 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 no. You've got a patient that's coming in that has a migraine and they're thinking, you know what, just to be cautious and your insurance doesn't cover it, we're going to send you to the ER. That's not a level five. And now we've had elevated care uh, to the hospital situation, the hospital section. And that's been added to a low-level visit. So insurance reasons and not having the equipment, but you're sending the patient to the hospital does not automatically turn something into a high-risk, high-level visit. It's about the problems addressed and the risk of the patient on the morbidity and mortality scenario. And then the last not compliance issue that I see, number 10, is using the modifier 25 or 57 incorrectly. So the modifier 25 I see gets slapped on established patient claims because the physician also did let's say a neck lipoma removal or they did an injection that day or they did let's say um, you know, endoscopy that day in the office. If any of those services are planned, then there is no e unless it's for a completely different problem. So if the patient's coming in, even though they're seeing the physician and they say, "Hi, how you doing? We're going to go proceed with this injection, there's no e there. And so putting that twenty five modifier on trying to get paid for both is not okay. That's non-compliant use of that modifier and can come back to get you later on. Also, it depends on what was in the the last E and M service that the patient saw too. Did it say, um, if you you know come back and make an appointment if you have a problem and we'll go ahead and do that again or we'll give you another injection or we'll take a look at it next time, mainly with derm, this happens all the time. you know that looks like that lesion is maybe um, a little flat for us to remove right now, but if you come back and schedule an appointment, you know in eight weeks, we'll take a look at it again and if it's still looking like it's a problem, we'll go ahead and remove it. So patient makes an appointment, they come back in and they remove it. That's not an ENm that is just the removal of the skin lesion. so, incorrect use of that 50 or I'm sorry of that 25 is a problem. The 57 modifier, I see that slapped on all the time when it's not emergent. Remember, that means the day of or the day before patient had an ENM service that led to the decision of a major surgery which has a 90-day global. If that's not the case, And it's two days out or it's not emergent in nature. Even though the rules don't say emergent in nature, that's what it means. It means that the patient comes in, they're admitted for severe abdominal, lower abdominal, lower quadrant uh, pain. And during that encounter, it's determined that they've got an acute appendicitis and they take them in for surgery. You need a 57 modifier in that with two different diagnoses. If you don't have it and you just put the acute appendicitis, good luck trying to get that paid because then the payer looks at that and says, well, if you already know the problem, why are we paying you for an encounter? So you have to tell the story of the patient. Otherwise you could uh, run into some denials and then have to figure out how to get that paid. And that's when it becomes expensive. The CodeCast podcast is also brought to you today by Independent Women Voice. IWV. They expand and support policies, solutions that enhance people's freedoms, choices, and opportunities. Go to IWV.org. All right, everyone, personal tidbit today. You know, we put in a pool last year. Well, guess what? I'm starting to finally get to use our pool because it's the weather has gotten great. And I forgot my sunscreen. Not only am I a true tomato this week. But also my head, oh my gosh, I blistered it a little bit. So for those of you out there, just a public service announcement, use your sunscreen. Me too. (laughs) And so, or wear a hat. But yeah, uh, I got a little sunburnt. And then I finally got the gray out of my hair and it stung a little bit to go get my hair cut and colored. So I was a little bummed. But I'm using my pool. I'm getting out and moving. So hopefully everyone is doing that as well. And you're not seeing snow anymore and wherever you are at so try to get some movement in do what you can go outside smell the fresh air you know go for a walk go in your pool whatever it takes let's just get moving so everyone have a great rest of your week make it a great day and thank you for listening to the codecast podcast for more information on medical coding billing auditing and compliance including how to hire terry follow terry on twitter at terrycoder one or visit her website at www.terryfletcher.net. Podcast producer Joe Kuzma. Music producer Assassin Music.